Hello and welcome to this new edition of Café Klingendal, the podcast series of the Klingendal Institute. My name is Rem Korteweg, Senior Research Fellow at Klingendal, and I'm joined here today by Matthew Goodwin. Matthew is Professor of Politics at the University of Kent and Senior Fellow at Chatham House in the United Kingdom. He is also a renowned expert on uh, populist movements, uh, both in the UK and, uh, and Europe writ large. He is the author of Revolt on the Right and co-author of Brexit, Why Britain Voted to Leave the European Union. Uh, Matthew, thank you for joining me today. Um, it's January. We have uh, 12 months until uh, we go into the holiday festivities again. Um, what, what is your outlook for 2018? Is the populist tide receding? Well, thank you for having me. The short answer to that question is no. Um, but I think it's worth recalling where the debate was in 2017 and perhaps where the debate went wrong. I think, you know, if we go back to those elections in France in the spring of 2017, there was a big uh, wave of uh, what you might call liberal optimism. The fact that Le Pen did not become president around the same time as Gert Wilders did not become the prime minister of the Netherlands. Emmanuel Macron won. Uh, we had Juncker's State of the Union speech not long after. And all of this was sort of taken as evidence that populism had peaked and was then in a slow and steady decline. Now, I don't know any serious analyst who thought that Le Pen would win or that Wilders would win. Um, but I know a lot that were saying she would do better than her father did in 2002, that Wilders would still recruit a strong base of support that the alternative for Germany would break through at the national level uh, and that the Freedom Party in Austria would probably get back into coalition. And I think 2017, to be frank, was actually a win for populism, not a loss if you take it in the whole. We also saw in Britain the ongoing Brexit debate and the slow realisation that people were not changing their minds. And I think this is a really important point. Brexit wasn't only a populist revolt. It was broader than the national populism, but it had very strong overlaps with the populist revolt. But today, if you look at the latest poll, when you ask Britain, um, in hindsight, was it right or wrong to vote to leave the European Union in January 2018? 46% said it was wrong. 42% said it was right and the rest are undecided. The margin of error in polls is about three points. So basically two blocks split down the middle. So I think you know, the populist rebellions are very much going to, to, to stay in place. We'll see a strong result for the Lega Nord in Italy and the five-star movement. We'll see a fairly decent result for the Sweden Democrats, certainly polling upwards of 10%. We'll see Viktor Orban do very well in Hungary. And we'll probably see in the not too distant future in the European elections mm. in 2019, these revolts actually become more uh, prominent at the EU level as well. So what you're saying is that uh, populist movements are here to stay. Um, our politics will will either remain or or, or become more volatile. Uh, there is um, the risk of greater political polarization as a, as a result of this. Why are people voting for these parties? I view uh, the current populist revolt, if you want to call it that, firstly, at broad level, as being a backlash to the progressive 
turn of the 1960s and 1970s. It is primarily driven by people's uh, values and their broad preferences around issues like immigration, European integration, feeling left behind relative to others in society. And that backlash was a long time coming, started in the late 70s and the 80s with Jean-Marie Le Pen, York Haider, and then began to gather pace with, you know, the UK Independence Party 2004, the Pimfortown uh, movement in the Netherlands, Gert Wilders, uh, you know, and the Swiss People's Party and so on. Um, so, so it has been, you know, if, if you take the broad view, this has been a 30, 40 year movement that is well entrenched in many states, not all states, uh, weaker in southern Europe, but, but is well entrenched and is winning over mainly voters who are skilled workers, less well educated, but have a very intensely held cluster of concerns about identity, security and belonging. And all of those things I've just said you know, can really only lead you to the conclusion that this has more uh, permanency, more durability than, than many uh, in the liberal camp, you might say, uh, would have you believe. I mean, that's, that's interesting because um, a lot of liberals, a lot of <clears throat> moderates, if you will, seem to f believe that the populist tide has receded. I mean, look at uh, statements from the European Commission, Juncker's latest State of the Union address talks about the EU having the wind in the sails. Uh, there is a sense that, um, well, with the Brits leaving the EU and Article 7 procedures started against a populist Polish government, that the EU more or less uh, is, uh, is in a safe spot, that it can move ahead with its agenda. Are we at risk of being woefully complacent about this undercurrent among our electorates? Well, I think complacent is one word, but I think also uh, many within the broader public debate, many in the media, many in politics, many particularly on the left, social democrats, have become obsessed with, with short-term factors. This is about what happened over the last 12 months with the refugee crisis, or with a slightly longer view, it's about the financial crisis, it's about austerity, you know, it's about the sovereign debt uh, issue. Uh, clearly, those with a longer political memory know that this movement was well on its way during a period of economic stability and growth in countries that often had low unemployment rates, like the Netherlands here, also Austria. If you take the breakthrough of the UK Independence Party, which was the canary in the coal mine uh, for the Brexit vote, um, it first broke through in 2004 after 48 consecutive periods of economic growth. I mean, this was a fairly good time in, in Britain. So, you know, the reason for that is because these movements are tapping into folks who are often working, but who feel that relative to others in society, they are being left behind, not only economically, but also socially, politically, and as though the values that dominate media and politics today are not their values, and they want to push the pendulum back the other way. And that's one of the reasons why I would suggest we've seen a much higher number of non-voters 
coming back into the political system, whether at the Brexit vote, where we had around two and a half million, mainly white working class voters who did not vote at the previous election, but then suddenly turned out to vote for Brexit. In Germany, the main source of votes for the alternative for Germany were non-voters. And similar in the US, Trump did well among voters that often hadn't voted in the past. So these movements are giving those voters a greater sense of agency. They can make a difference. They can change the world around them. They can get back into the conversation. And for many of those voters, they felt as simply as though they've not been in the conversation for many years. If we look at Brexit in particular, people voted for Brexit because they wanted to have a sense of agency. They wanted to have to take back control. How is that faring them? Is the radical right that infused the debate around Britain's membership of the EU, are they able to deliver? Well, that's a million dollar question. I think we're entering into a very interesting time in the political debate in the West where we're going to have to deal with this question of you know, what happens when populists don't deliver? Does their support simply ebb away? Is it transactional? Is it actually about policy delivery? And if you look at things like the Brexit debate, you know, I think we all know, and even leavers know, they're not going to get the sharp reductions in immigration that they perhaps thought they were going to get. They're not going to get this uh, return of absolute national sovereignty over every every aspect of their daily lives. We know that big international organizations, transnational organizations will remain incredibly powerful. We know lobbyists will remain incredibly powerful. And we know that all things considered, many working class voters will still not have a seat at the table, perhaps as much as they think they will. But uh, it is also true that many of these voters for the first time feel as though somebody at least is at the table representing them. Uh, and I think that is what gives populism a, a potency that we have underestimated, that we thought, well, what happens when Trump doesn't bring, bring back jobs? What happens when, you know, Yorkshire and the north of England doesn't get an end or a complete end to freedom of movement or a complete return to net migration levels of 20,000, not 300,000? You know, I think we're even despite all of that, these voters now have got used to uh, using a different vehicle to express their views and their opinions. There's no reason why they should run back to the mainstream unless they can use the mainstream to get their values onto the table, which is what many UKIP voters have done by defecting back to the Conservatives who have absorbed the UKIP platform. Mm -hmm. I mean, never forget how strategic voters can be. We had around four or five million that went defected away from the mainstream to the UK Independence Party, a thinly resourced, shambolic, amateurish party at times. But then 70% of them in 2017 ran back to the Conservative Party when they realised, actually, the Conservative Party is representing three quarters of the UKIP agenda. So they, they got what they wanted and then they responded accordingly. Is that also why Theresa May might not be able to deliver on what we hear on the continent would like to see in terms of the Brexit negotiations, a softer Brexit where the UK actually accepts certain elements connected to either freedom of movement or oversight of the European Court of Justice. How, how do you see the Brexit negotiations play out in that political context for Theresa May? I think it's very unlikely that we will have a, a form of Brexit that satisfies these different factions within the electorate. 
Um, a soft Brexit that includes a long transition, ECJ jurisdiction over EU citizens, uh, paying into the budget, a continuation of freedom of movement in another name. All of that stuff, that soft Brexit stuff, will leave behind a ready and willing constituency for a party that says, I'm sorry, that's not Brexit. That is not a meaningful Brexit. That is EU membership in another name. And that tension will come down on the main parties, maybe from the UK Independence Party, maybe from a completely different party. But that, te that pressure will come at some point because we know that these voters are willing to mobilise around that issue. The Labour Party will be faced with that tension in a much bigger way, you might argue, uh, than, than it has until now. We know that the Labour electorate is deeply split on the issue of Remain versus Leave, that 45% of working class Labour voters back Brexit. So people constantly say, well, 64% of all Labour voters want to remain, so therefore Jeremy Corbyn should campaign to remain. That shows a woeful understanding of the Labour electorate and Labour territory. 140 Labour districts voted to leave the European Union. Many of those districts gave Nigel Farage his first place finish at the 2014 European Parliament elections, and I suspect would be willing to defect again. So the tensions in British politics, which... Brexit brought out and which have been deepened by the general election in 2017 are not going anywhere anytime soon. There will be a tussle over the form of Brexit and it may well be that Theresa May finds herself in a position where she has to advocate for a harder Brexit than even we currently realise now. Do not forget that the electorate for the Conservative Party today in January 2018 is more pro-Brexit is more anti-immigration, uh, is more anti-EU than the electorate that gave David Cameron a majority in 2015 because the Conservatives have hoovered up many of those former UKIP voters. And with that sober thought, I'd like to thank you, uh, Matthew, for your insights and for uh, spending your time with me this morning. We will continue to uh, have this conversation about uh, populism in Europe and what's happening in the UK as it promises to be a very interesting year ahead with elections in Italy, Hungary, Sweden. And local elections in And Britain. local elections in the UK and in, and the, in Netherlands. the Netherlands. And in the Netherlands. If you would like to stay updated on Café Klingendal, please register for our newsletter at the Klingendal website, www.klingendal.org. <laughs>